Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Good to be with you guys. If I didn't introduce myself earlier, my name is Michael, one of the, the leaders, pastors here. So good to be with you. And uh, whether you're joining us online or listening later in the week or here present with us, uh, as Jasmine mentioned this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. So we're excited to do that. But we're also just continuing in a series we've been going through this summer called Grown Up Prayers. And as part of this series, we've been learning to just go through the book in the Bible called the Psalms. And if you've never heard of the Psalms, they're this collection of secret prayers that really help us to mature and to grow in our own prayers. And so together we've been looking kind of at one Psalm at a time and working through it together. And before we want to look at the, the I want us to look at the Psalm for this week, uh, now that we're really kind of just at the halfway point of this series, if you've been tracking with us so far and you've heard some of the other messages, I think it's a good time to just pause and ask you, what are the Psalms teaching you so far about prayer? What is maybe an idea or a principle that you're kind of learning to grow in? And that if you got to the end of the summer, you'd say, I don't want to forget about that. That's something that I actually want to really begin to put into practice as I learn to mature in prayer. This is really, I think, an important thing to reflect on, especially in a series that's on prayer. Because the temptation whenever we do a series like this, I felt this a temptation many times, is to just learn some good ideas or new information, but then forget to be intentional about what it means to put this into practice learning to pray in a way that you actually become more mature in your prayers. And so as I think about this question, one thing I'm reminded of that I still need to grow in and pay attention to is the temptation I find to turn prayer into a formula. I don't know if you feel this way, but growing up when I learned about prayer and practiced it in different ways, I often treated prayer almost as a formula to get to God. Like if I pray this particular way, then this will happen, or then God will do this for me. And I did this in different, different ways and in different contexts. I thought if I could just pray the right words in the right order, I could almost force God to speak and to act. And so I would do this in seasons where I would only pray to God to protect me before I did something dangerous. Or if I thought if I kind of said the right words and maybe laid hands in the right way, I could kind of force God to heal Or even did this with the Bible and prayer. Maybe you're guilty of this too. This is an embarrassing one that I have to confess, but I did the Bible roulette thing. I don't know if you've heard of that. I would, uh, you know, if I really wanted God to speak to me, I'd open to a page of the Bible, be like, this is what God, this is what you're saying to me. Don't ever do that if you're just learning to read your Bible. It's really, you'll get some messy stuff come out. But this is still a temptation I think for me, I have to pay attention to whenever I approach prayer and when I approach the Psalms. To learn, and I have to learn to see them as these prayers that sort of, or sorry, I have often looked at them as these prayers that kind of invoke God's grace or blessings or his presence, like force it, instead of seeing them as prayers that really help me listen and respond to what God is doing. Maybe that's something that you're learning as well as you think about what it means to mature in your prayers. 
learning even just to see the gift of the Psalms and other written prayers and maybe other phrases to pray that you've been given, not as formulas to get to do God to do what you want, but as these intentional prayers that guide and give us new language to our own prayers as we mature and learn to respond to God. This is uh, just a really important principle to keep in mind as we look at a psalm we're going to look at this morning, which is Psalm 32. Maybe you've read it or you've heard it before, but it's a psalm that touches on the theme of confession. Now, I don't know about what comes to mind to you when you think of the word confession, but I think for many of us, it feels like a very negative word. It's a word that even can carry a lot of baggage. You know, many of us have different pictures or ideas of what confession is from our culture or past church experiences. And so my prayer this morning as we look at that, as we look at this psalm, is that it gives you even a new picture of what confession is really about. That it helps you to see confession actually as a gift and as a response to God and to what he's already doing. And so before we look at this psalm, I want to start by just looking at the words of Jesus, because one of the ways that Jesus actually taught us to pray was to confess. When Jesus is asked by his disciples how they should pray, he shares with them what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And one of the lines of this prayer is that he teaches them to say this. I'll have it on the screen. Just a simple line, he says, And forgive us our sins. It's a really simple part of the Lord's Prayer. I think it's a reminder for Christians that Jesus actually calls us to grow in our prayers by being intentional about what it means to confess. And it's something that Christians have actually practiced in different ways over the centuries. And not only that, but they learned then to see the Psalms, to look back on the Psalms, and to pray them as these sacred prayers that gave deeper words and language to their own confession, that led them in a way to, to confess in a way that really honors God. Now, I don't know about you, but as I, as I look at that, uh, one question I often had about this line in the Lord's Prayer is, why does Jesus tell us to confess our sins if he never did? I don't know if you have that question. Like, if Jesus was perfect, and he never sinned, but he's also our model of how we should live, then why do we have to confess? Maybe you have that question. Jesus, like, Jesus, why does Jesus tell us to confess if he never did? But the reason is because Jesus is not just a model for us to imitate. This is really, really important. Jesus is not much just a model, but he's something much more than that. And one author that I like kind of says it this way. He says, Jesus isn't someone we try to live up to, He's the one that we get to live into. We're transformed not because of our own effort or because we're able to imitate him, but because we surrender to him. And as we do, he transforms us to be more like him. And by making us more like him, Jesus actually makes us more human, more of how we were actually created to be. Maybe this seems like just a really subtle difference, but it's so important to understand particularly about confession. That Jesus calls us to confess, not in a way that just models what he did, but as a way of recognizing and admitting admitting the things that dehumanize us, or that draw us away from him, or get in the way of the new creation, or the new humanity he's actually forming in us. And so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 32, and how it points to this new reality. And like some of the other psalms we've looked at so far, Psalm 32 is another psalm of David. We've looked at a few psalms now that David's written. And this is one of the psalms that he writes about confession. And he writes this psalm as he's actually looking back later and reflecting on a particular moment in his life. Uh, one of the things you need to know about David is he's someone who really learned the hard way about the gift of confession. If you don't know much about David, he made some big mistakes during his time as Israel's king. 
And the Bible records actually a particular moment in his life that you can go and read about in 1 Samuel where he actually first commits adultery with one of his soldiers' wives. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, he actually tries to cover it up by having that soldier murdered. Can you imagine? What a scandal. Isn't that crazy? That's in our Bible. There's, there's other stuff in our Bible too, but it's crazy to think about. This is actually there. And the Bible tells that, us that because of these actions, David actually suffers some serious consequences. And yet, not only later does he allow this to be publicly recorded for us to learn from today, but later in his life, as David looks back on this moment and he writes this psalm, he learns to see confession not as something negative, but instead that as a gift that points to God's forgiveness. So we're going to look at that together, and here's how this psalm begins. This is what it says. It said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not account against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So David begins this psalm that I think in a way that's really surprising for many of us. He ties actually the image of the blessed life with the idea of confession. What is he talking about? How can he put those two things together? But if you remember maybe from week one of this series, we talked about how this, the first psalm, Psalm 1, introduces us to the book of Psalms as this collection of prayers that actually give an image or a picture of what the blessed life really looks like, a life blessed by God, which is actually so different than the rest of the world and how they think about what it means. And this psalm that David writes sees confession as a blessing because he's learning to trust in God's forgiveness. He, his prayers have matured in a way that he's come to know and live out of God's forgiveness. And he sees his identity not as someone who's perfect, not as somebody who has it all together, someone who still fails and makes mistakes, but as someone who is still deeply loved by God. And he has learned to see confession as a response to this kind of God. This is so different than the many pictures, I think, or ideas of confession that we get in our world or in our culture. Uh, where confession, again, is often such a negative thing. One example of this that I came across a few months ago now that kind of really stood out to me was something that happened with a famous NHL hockey player named Kale McCarr. If you've never heard of Kale McCarr before, not only does he have one of the coolest names in the world, who doesn't want to be named after a a great piece of vegetable, uh, but he's actually one of the superstars in the NHL, in the National Hockey League. And there was a moment in a game this past season where he was coming along with the puck behind the net, and as he was coming along, an opposing player came right up to him, and it looked like that player tripped him. And so after that happened, he was, they were given a penalty, his team was going to go on a power play, but before they went on a power play, he actually went up to the referees and kind of confessed and said, actually, I know it looks bad, but I, he didn't really trip me, I actually just fell. Like I lost my edge and I fell over, and so he confessed this. But then after, so they, so they cancel the power play, everything goes back to normal, his team doesn't get an advantage, and then after this, he says something actually really surprising the next day. This is what he said. He said, I think I would have felt a lot less guilty if I didn't say anything than if I did. I apologize to my teammates. I don't plan on doing that thing again. Isn't that crazy? He's actually like confessing that he confessed. He's got, and he got actually, I think, such a mixed reaction after he confessed this, this, this truth on social media from his fans and from his teammates because he actually gave up this advantage that he was actually kind of feeling bad or regretting kind of coming clean and being a good sport. And I think this idea of confession in our culture is often understood or at least confused in a similar way. 
We learn to see confession as a bad thing, especially when it keeps us from getting ahead. We're told even that a blessed life is one where you live just guilt-free. You can kind of tattoo no regrets across your chest. Some of you got that reference. And see it just as an ideal picture of what the good life is really about. But this isn't just even the only way that we learn about confession or it's talked about in our culture. On the other extreme or the other side, I think confession in our culture can even become something that's forced on other people in a way that's actually absent of any grace. We can hold others accountable in a way that we expect them to confess or admit their wrongs, but without any sense of hope or forgiveness. And because of that, the gift of accountability, which is something that's actually really important to a kind of a healthy society and it's for change and to protect others, It's become so harsh and condemning, or at least can be, that it shames and dehumanizes and even demonizes other people. And I think many of us, as we consider these two extremes, we feel this tension, or we live maybe somewhere in the middle of this confusion of both these extremes. We can confuse confession as this negative thing to stay away from that just leads to maybe more guilt or shame, or as something to do only as a last resort in order to avoid negative consequences. Or I always find it weird, maybe you've seen this, how in movies, confession's always depicted in a way that someone uh, confesses almost as an excuse to then sin on purpose. Like it's usually some kind of vigilante guy who will go confess to a priest that he's about to kill someone so that he can go actually do it and still have a clean conscience. And I think some of this confusion, again, it raises a question many people have about confession, especially when they start following Jesus. They think, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean I can just keep on doing whatever I want, even if it's wrong? And then I can just confess and ask God to forgive me? But one of the the biggest ways I think the idea of confession gets confused is to see it as a way to earn God's love or forgiveness. I remember thinking of confession this way for so long. I thought that that God maybe would only love me or forgive me if I confessed. But in Christianity, confession isn't done to earns God's forgiveness, but as a response to his forgiveness. Let me say that again. In Christianity, confession isn't done to earn God's forgiveness, but as a response to his forgiveness. We confess as a result or of confidence in the reality of God's forgiveness, not the other way around. And our sin doesn't negate God's love or forgiveness, and we don't confess even in order to restore our relationship with God. Instead, as we grow and mature in our faith, Confession becomes something we actually long to do as a natural outworking of knowing we're loved and forgiven by God. One, people, uh, one another question people often have, and it comes up especially when something is thinking about maybe getting baptized, making the decision to follow Jesus, is they ask, do you still sin? Like, do you still make mistakes after you become a Christian? Maybe you've wondered that. The answer we usually give is, is usually pretty disappointing. But the truth is that while we still sin and we still make mistakes even after we choose to follow Jesus, as we learn to mature in our prayers, we begin to trust more and more in the reality and the assurance that we're forgiven. And we even desire to confess as we long for God's ways and to surrender to the things, surrender to him the things that don't align with him. We're called to confess not as a formula for earning God's love, but as a call to surrender those things to God and trust in the transforming power of his love and forgiveness. And so just as you think about this, maybe as you learn to pray this way for the first time, would you even just begin with this simple prayer? God, help me just to grow in the assurance of your forgiveness, to grow in the confidence that you are a God who always forgives. 
Help me to have the courage even to acknowledge and to surrender the things that don't align with your ways or your purposes out of a growing confidence in your forgiveness. David, the writer of this psalm, as he looks back later on his life, he's able to see confession as a gift and as part of what it means to live a blessed life because he's so assured of God's forgiveness. And because of that, he's learned to get honest about his failures and his brokenness. And in this next section of the psalm, as we keep going, David helps us to grow in this way by looking back on his life and by comparing what it looked like in a moment or a season when he tried to cover things up versus what it looked like when he learned to confess. Here's what he says about uh, kind of what he experienced when he tried to keep things hidden from God. This is what it says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Wow. Such a vivid picture, I think, of the experience or the consequences of trying to cover something up or hide the things or the areas where we know we've made a mistake. The reality is, too, that it doesn't just take an emotional toll, but it's really getting at the physical toll that this this takes. But I want to make something really clear as we look at this passage, which is that not all suffering is a result of sin. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that this passage is not, and this passage is not saying that whenever bad things happen to you, it's because you did something wrong. Uh, and again, if you, can go, you want to go back a few weeks, we talked about that a little bit more. But what he is describing here is this particular reality of the consequences of trying to cover something up, that it begins to eat away at you, that it becomes even exhausting to work to try to cover it up or to ignore it. It's the reality that when sin stays hidden, it even gets louder and louder and takes more of your energy and even starts to consume you. I don't know about you, but I've experienced this many times in my life and many even long stretches or seasons where I tried to cover up my mistakes. And it's in those moments that I know it's tempting to think, if I confess, won't that that just make things worse? Like It's such an easy lie to believe because it seems so true. Sin and shame that results can become this vicious cycle where we do everything we can to cover it up, even if it feels, uh, even as we feel worse and worse. And I think there are really two ways that we try to cover up our mistakes or the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of. One is by hiding it as best we can, but the other way is by pretending to be something that we're not. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this show on Netflix. I introduced it to my family Uh, about a year ago. I kind of regretted it after, but it's a show called Is It Cake? Maybe you've seen it or you've seen the title or you've watched some of it before. If you've never seen it, uh, I couldn't watch it anymore. There was just something about the host and his voice that bothered me. Okay, sorry, I I judge people too. If you don't like my voice, it's okay, I understand. It is a little nasally, Uh, but I couldn't keep watching just because of that. But if you've never heard of it, the concept of this show is it's a reality game show where they invite these professional bakers to come on, and they have to bake a cake that looks as realistic as possible, that looks like something else. So they'll bake something that looks like a sneaker or a purse or like a hamburger or whatever it is, and the idea is that they have to make it so realistic that it'll actually trick the judges into thinking that they're getting mixed up between what is cake and what is real. And uh, if they do this, they win bags of cash. Okay, it's an amazing concept. Um, And often they actually do win this cash. It's pretty amazing what they can do. And it's just incredible that these bakers are just so good at this kind of deception or making something look like it's not. And I think this kind of just gives a really a snapshot of just how good all of us are at doing this. We're all so good at deception. 
We're all so good at doing that that it almost becomes second nature to us. It's like automatic. We don't even think about it. We don't, we, we're not only so good at hiding the things that we want to keep out of sight, but we're also good at pretending to be something that we're not. And when we live with these certain illusions for so long, it becomes hard to even recognize that they're there or what they are, let alone to acknowledge them and to surrender them to God. The sneakiest thing I think about our ability to deceive is that we not only can deceive other people, but that we even deceive ourselves. It can become so important, maybe for if you really see yourself or want to present yourself as a helpful person to others, that you stop recognizing the moments when you can also act selfish. Or to see yourself as so humble that you can't admit the ways that you're full of pride. Or to see yourself as so put together or on top of things that you can't admit the times that you've just made a mistake or where you're feeling like you're falling apart or you don't have an answer. I confess I often do that last one. And the definition and the meaning of the word confession or to confess just simply means to tell the truth. That's it. That's all the word means. To tell the truth about God and to tell the truth about ourselves. It's to fight the temptation to ignore even the parts of ourselves we don't like or we're ashamed of or we tend to pretend that they don't exist. And so as you think about this, one simple way to pray is just to ask God, what are the parts of me that I'm prone to hide? It takes real courage to ask that question, but it's such an important question to ask in our prayers. To have the courage to say, God, search me and reveal to me the areas that I'm prone to cover up or to hide or pretend to be something that I'm not. And then to surrender those things to him and just allow him to work on you. As you learn just to have the risk or the courage to risk doing this, this next part of the psalm now talks about what it then looks like to confess and just acknowledge our sins as we learn to get honest with God. Here's what it says. It says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David, the writer, learned to confess by taking ownership and responsibility for his sin, and he gives us a picture of what this looks like. He says that to really confess is to stop making excuses, to stop blaming other people, And it's to get honest about those things that don't align with God's ways or God's purposes or who he is and to just surrender those to him. And as I was studying this psalm, one thing I learned that I found really interesting about this particular verse, which is really kind of at the heart of the psalm, is it actually uses three different Hebrew words for the word sin. We don't get that in every uh, version of our Bible, but it uses three different Hebrew words. And each of these words come at it from a slightly different angle. And so we'll have those on the screen. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce those for you because I'm not. Uh, but the first one you'll see really gets at the, way, the idea of missing the mark, right? kind of failure, and particularly it's used in the context of moral failure. The second is the idea of going astray or kind of wandering in the wrong direction. And the third gets at this idea of crossing a line. And I think the reason as we look at those that it gives us these different words or the ideas, different ideas for sin is because sin is such a difficult idea to grasp. There's a mystery even to how much it gets hold of us or gets into us that we, no word can really fully capture. And each of these words for sin, as we look at them, help us to see that sin goes beyond even just the act or the behavior. It also involves what's beneath the surface and the stuff that's easier to keep hidden. It involves the whole person, the whole of who we are. And so to mature in our prayers of confession moves us on beyond just our behavior. 
That yeah, even as we start there, that's our prayer, just to recognize the different ways that we act or behavior or mistakes that we've made, wrong actions. This also begins to acknowledge our thoughts, our patterns, our tendencies, and even our desires. One author that I love kind of describes confession this way. He says, at the root of wrong actions, confession recognizes a failure to love, or rather a failure to love well, to love rightly, and to love the right thing in the right order. To confess is to get honest in a way that we let God sort of peel back the layers of who we are and to allow his forgiveness to work itself in us in deeper and deeper ways, even to the places where we're most tempted to keep hidden from him or to hide or to pretend that they don't exist or to pretend to be something different. And so to mature in this prayer of confession is to confess not just the behavior that comes to mind, though again you'll start there, but to begin to acknowledge what's below the surface and even to ask God to reveal that. And so one practical way just to do this in your prayer is to ask God to show you what's really going on beneath the act or the behavior that you also need to confess and surrender to him. Maybe it's an area where you've just missed the mark and failed to really love your spouse or your child or parent or friend or neighbor. Or an area where you realize you begin to kind of wander for God. Or something you're realizing you desire in place of him. Maybe it's pride or lust, or whatever it is. A few years ago, uh, a few years, sorry, after I became a Christian, I finally started to kind of take this kind of prayer of confession seriously. And as I did that, I kind of recognized or had to admit that there was a pattern in my life that was really unhealthy where I was indulging in things that were really not good for me and leading me down the wrong direction. And one of the things that happened is I began to just take this to God in my prayer is I realized that underneath that, was resentment towards God. I slowly realized that this pattern that was on the outside existed because I was resenting God whenever I wasn't happy with the things that he was giving me. I felt like he didn't want what was good for me or he didn't want what was best for me. And so out of that resentment, I was going to or indulging those things that were unhealthy to kind of say, I deserve this even if you don't think I do, God. And this was a really, really painful thing for me to admit and just begin to surrender to him. But I I kind of noticed that as I did that, I experienced his forgiveness in a whole new way. I knew that he was a God who forgave. But as I kind of just laid those things bare just before him, I realized that he was forgiving even those really messy parts of me. And as I went through this process, I even began to see that he was breaking that, that kind of external cycle of behavior because of the deeper work that he was doing in me. The truth about confession is that the more that we learn to just practice and be intentional about confessing and looking even to what's going on below the surface, the more assured we actually become of God's forgiveness, even to those areas that we feel are just too broken or we most want to hide from him because we're most ashamed of them. I think the ultimate way that we can deceive ourselves is to believe the lie that there are parts of us that God cannot forgive. It's the lie that if God really saw me for who I am beneath the surface, with all the parts that are rotting or kind of empty or disguised as something else, that he'll just turn away or he'll reject me. But the truth is that God has already forgiven you, right to the core of who you are. And not only that, but he already loves you just as you are. And it's this love, actually, that transforms you. As you learn to get honest and surrender, even the parts that seem too ugly or too broken, 
He transforms you and he sets you free. As we kind of get to the end of this psalm, David then ends this psalm almost with a sort of warning to not fall into the wrong pattern or understanding of what it means to confess to God. Here's what he says. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Now, if you know me at all and you look at this passage, you know that I'm just terrible with animals. I'm not a big animal guy. I don't really understand them. And so uh, I'm lucky I even know what these animals are. Uh, but one time, actually, uh, I actually had an opportunity to ride a horse. The only reason why I did it is because I was, my wife Jasmine and I were dating at the time. She convinced me to go on this date and ride a horse. And uh, you know how they say horses sm- can smell your fear? I'm sure the horse got like a really good whiff of me that day. Um, but so I always struggle whenever I look at passages like this. But one of the ways that I kind of was helpful in understanding this or looking this is when we were, uh, we grew up in Montreal, but when we were living in Ontario, our oldest uh, daughter, Ella, had a few years where she had an opportunity to do some horseback riding lessons. And one of the things she learned was that horses really are as stubborn as we hear that they are and that they really need a bit to control them. And, and our daughter, Ella, who's like, so just sweet and gentle and sensitive to animals and to other people, one of the biggest things she had to learn early on was to be really aggressive with the horse. She really had to yank and pull hard on that bit because she kind of, what the thing that she learned is that horses really are that stubborn and they'll really only go where you want them if you really yank on that bit in their mouth. Because for horses, it's only when the pain from the bit is strong enough that they'll actually listen and they'll follow. And so David in this psalm is warning us Don't be stubborn like the horse and the mule. Don't be so kind of stuck in immaturity that you only do what's right or you only confess to avoid negative consequences. As parents, we kind of get this or we experience this with our kids. I'm the type of parent who loves to just make rules for my kids. I'll even make up rules for them uh, just to see if they'll follow them. And I learned as a parent that no matter how many rules you make for your kids, And how many negative consequences they even feel when they break them, it doesn't change that much. They'll only mature so much in that pattern. That even though rules are helpful to a certain point, in the end, they'll just do what they want to do. And our prayer, even just for our kids, is that they'll mature beyond just following the rules to begin to actually desire to do what's right. And then I think this stays true of us even the older that we get. But the important principle to remember is Christianity is not just about behavior modification. Behavior modification will only help you mature so much, and the change will only go so deep, and it will never actually last. And David kind of gives this warning that you can learn to confess in a way that doesn't bring that lasting change. If you could only confess when you feel sorry for yourself, or you only confess to avoid negative consequences, it won't matter because you'll just go back to that same cycle of behavior, and you'll miss the deeper transforming work God really wants to do. When this is how you see confession, it even becomes legalistic and empty and just about trying to earn God's forgiveness. But God really wants to do a deeper work. He wants you to learn to confess in a way that you become confident in his forgiveness, that you begin to surrender to him in a way that you experience really true freedom and joy. And not only that, but to mature in our prayers is to learn to confess, get honest before God when there are no negative consequences even when you're not caught or with the things that nobody sees. 
David had to learn this the hard way. If you know the story of David, later on he actually confessed his big mistake, but only after he was confronted by someone else. And only later he was able to look back and really see the gift of practicing confession. To grow in maturity is confess even before or even without any bad consequences, out of a growing desire to follow Jesus and a growing confidence and assurance of God's forgiveness. To become someone who sees confession as such a gift that you even desire to confess because you no longer need to hide or to pretend. Just as we begin to wrap up, uh, we're going to take communion together in a moment. And one of the things we do when we take communion is to see it as a place of confession. To see it not only as a place that we confess and we admit that we're sinners, that there are things in our lives that get in the way or draw us away from God, but to also confess, uh, to, to see the table as a place where we confess who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We come as a place where Jesus invites us as those who are assured of God's forgiveness and those who are committed to living in light of that forgiveness. So before we get to, to confession, I'm also just going to ask the, the bands coming up just to lead us once again in the song, Run to the Father. And as they do, would you just take this moment to consider this simple question? What's something that you need to confess to God? Is there something maybe that you realize you've been hiding from him? Maybe because you've believed the lie that it's too big or too painful for God to forgive. Would you ask him even just to give you the courage to trust him in a deeper way? To trust that he can even break that pattern and free you from the temptation to hide or to pretend or cover up, and even from your own shame. And so as we just sing this song, Run to the Father, what do you need to surrender to him? I pray really that as we sing this, and as you learn even beyond this to make confession a regular part of your life, you'll grow in the assurance that he's the kind of God that's safe to run to, that he's the kind of God who's always waiting with open arms. So let's stand and let's sing this song. Father again. 
about uh, communion or coming together at the table in this way, but whenever we come to the table, we're actually given a glimpse of what heaven looks like. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, what he's done for us, this gift that he's given us that we can't have for ourselves or receive other than, uh, any other way than just receiving it from him as a gift, that whenever we do this, or because, sorry, because of this, we're given a glimpse of what heaven will be like that we'll be able to come together as those who don't need to hide, who don't need to pretend, who can just be as we are, transformed by Him with Jesus at the center. And in the meantime, whenever we come together at the table, we commit to be those who, who, who kind of are committed to living a bit of heaven now, as those who just desire to confess the things that get in the way, that we confess to just the truth of who Jesus is. That whenever we come to the table, we grow, we're committed to grow in the confidence of God's forgiveness. Being reminded that it's only something that we can receive. And yet it's a gift that he gives to all of us, that he wants to, us to experience more and more. So as we take communion together, we read these words. It says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. and to surrender to you and to allow just your transforming forming work, the power of that to just get into us more and more, to shape us in how we live and how we interact with other people as those who are set free. And so would you just continue to do this work in us as only you can do as we just learn to just surrender. God, would you give us even the courage to do that, to trust that you are a God who even loves us, even with the ugliest parts of us that we can think of. And that you are a God who transforms. And so be with us as we just practice this, as maybe for some of us we even learn to do this for the first time. Thank you that you go ahead of us and that you, uh, your arms are always wide open for us. And so be with us as we go from here. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks so much, everyone, for doing this with us, for being here and worshiping, and uh, just have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.